Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 80, Living Things. Based on the information we have to date, life in the universe does appear to be rare. At the same time, it seems a bit too extraordinary to believe we are actually the only life. But perhaps we are one of the first forms of life to start looking around with some technological vigour for signs of other life. But to do this effectively, we also need to think outside the box as to just what sort of life we might find. For example, Dear Cheap Astronomy, Can life arise in a hydrogen atmosphere? There is a lot of current interest in this, following recent demonstrations that a range of microorganisms can survive in a 100% hydrogen atmosphere. But surviving is only part of the story. Life as we know it requires energy to build and sustain its structural integrity in the face of various environmental challenges and also to reproduce. If life is to arise anywhere from inorganic sources, it must initially be autotrophic. That is, able to create its own energy and its structural integrity, and to reproduce, all independent of other organisms. Hence, this excludes the animals and the fungi and most plants, which depend on animal-mediated pollination or on soil nutrients that are derived from other biological sources. So given all that, you can cut the list right down to some algae, cyanobacteria and archaea that survive on photo or chemosynthesis. So surviving in a hydrogen atmosphere is quite feasible for most non-aerobic organisms, that is, the ones that don't need oxygen, which again means some algae, cyanobacteria or archaea. But again, it's not enough just to survive. If you're in an environment of hydrogen and nothing else, you're not going to be able to build a body, and although molecular hydrogen is a good basis for metabolic energy production, you can't actually do all that much if you just have hydrogen and nothing else. The metabolic energy production pathways that we know about mostly involve redox reactions, that is, reduction and oxygenation reactions, where reduction means you gain an electron and oxidation means you lose one. So metabolic energy production pathways involve electron transport chains, where an electron donor, perhaps light-energised chlorophyll, passes an electron down a chain of redox reactions to an ultimate electron acceptor, which is NADP in standard photosynthesis, the energy acquired from that then being used to make carbohydrate out of CO2. Whether carbohydrate is a good energy storage material, which can be broken down later, day or night, releasing energy as needed. Animals then exploit that system by eating plants to get their carbohydrate, meaning they don't have to synthesise it themselves. And then there's other animals that eat those animals without ever bothering the plants, and so you have an ecosystem. Chemosynthetic organisms use various chemicals as electron donors to make their carbohydrates, 
hydrogen sulfide being the main electron donor for bacteria that live around deep ocean hydrothermal vents. And there are also some bacteria that use molecular hydrogen, H2, which is currently our best hope for finding life under the ice on Europa or Enceladus. But of course, in all these examples, water is needed as a universal solvent, as well as having a direct role in some metabolic pathways, and of course, CO2 is needed as a carbon source. Furthermore, there's a whole mechanical side to Earth-based energy production, which is mediated by structures including protein-based enzymes and phospholipid membranes. Consider that if you spill some petrol on the ground and light it, sure, it will burn and release energy. But if you want to use that energy to drive a car, you need fuel injectors and pistons to usefully direct that energy towards a drive shaft. Much of the mechanical side of life is built from amino acids, which probably arose inorganically from high-energy collisions between icy comets and carbonaceous asteroids. Those collisions mushing frozen CO2 and H2O together with nitrogen-rich clay minerals, where nitrogen is what makes the amine part of amino acids. Phospholipid membranes probably arose around the time that inorganic chemistry became biochemistry, where phospholipids are a combination of carbon-based fats and an inorganic phosphate salt, all of which can only really come together in liquid water. So again, sure, life can survive in a hydrogen atmosphere, and it can also use that hydrogen as an energy source, but you need a whole bunch of other stuff for life as we know it to arise and persist and reproduce. It's unknown whether reproduction is a fundamental requirement of all life in the universe, but it is the only way it happens here. This is the middle bit. If death is an engineering problem, then life is a chemistry problem. And there's also the issue of perpetuity. A living entity will inevitably experience some kind of injury through interacting with its environment even if it's just a slow degradation that is essentially ageing. Life on Earth deals with this problem by creating new generational units. But is generational renewal the only way to survive the test of time? Dear Cheap Astronomy, what other forms of life are possible? It is quite difficult to imagine a different form of life than what we see about us, since what we see about us is the only example we have. So on Earth, there are various ways to capture energy, build a body, and reproduce. So we tend to assume that is the standard model for life. The drive to reproduce is somewhat illusionary, much like the drive to eat is. If you don't have a drive to eat, you die, and you don't contribute to the gene pool And if you don't have a drive to reproduce, you don't contribute to the gene pool either. So, the gene pool inevitably fills up with things that do have drives to eat and to reproduce. Having a drive doesn't mean you have a purpose, although people will tend to assume there must be a purpose or otherwise have to acknowledge they're alive for no particular reason. If you are able to resist the drive to reproduce, or even to eat, that doesn't make you a bad person, 
It just means you'll never influence the gene pool. But although reproduction is the only way that life happens here, it's not clear if it is a defining characteristic. To be alive, with respect to capturing energy, building a body, and sustaining that body over time, you will need some kind of renewal process to deal with normal wear and tear, but potentially that could just be about building replacement parts from raw materials. If we envision life as spontaneously arising from inorganic sources, then it's unlikely the ability to plan ahead would be there from the start, but there might be some kind of underlying template that degraded materials eventually fall out of to be replaced by fresh materials naturally attracted to any gaps in that template. Of course, the template itself might degrade, but our experience on Earth is that a mutable template is actually a good thing, like DNA with its occasional tendency for reproduction errors which lead to mutations. Most mutants die, but some have quirks that let them exploit new areas of the environment or the same areas of the environment in more efficient ways. And so the mutants come to influence the gene pool, not through any innate desire to do so, they just do. So, perhaps reproduction is not a necessary aspect of life across the universe, but evolution is. It is hard to see how something could persist over time without also changing over time. And if we are looking out for intelligent technology users, they surely must be the result of an evolutionary process. It's unlikely any life form is going to spontaneously arise with the ability to build a radio transmitter. Although, not so fast. This is, after all, a podcast about what other forms of life are possible. It's not that hard to broadcast electromagnetic radiation, which is mostly about the acceleration and deceleration of electrons around atoms. An early life form whose success depends upon communalism could use low-energy radio transmissions to enable mutually beneficial cooperation. Such a strategy may never have taken off on Earth, since Earth's early life was mostly immersed in water, which quickly absorbs, and hence blocks, radio waves. And while we're on the subject, is water really mandatory? Well, maybe not, but some kind of chemical solvent might be necessary to provide a medium within which various chemical interactions can evolve from the inorganic to the organic. A solvent is really just the dominant part of a solution, and it doesn't have to be a liquid. So, for example, nitrogen is technically the solvent of Earth's atmosphere, since it is the dominant part of a solution that contains oxygen and argon and carbon dioxide, a few trace materials, and also water vapour. And going further, sure, carbon seems like an ideal platform for building bodies given its high affinity for bonding with other elements, including most of the universe's ubiquitous ones, like hydrogen, oxygen and nitrogen. But silicon can do almost as good a job. So, there are always possibilities. Given that carbon-based life has done so well within a liquid water medium on Earth, it seems likely this same foundation may be found elsewhere in the universe 
We just shouldn't assume it's the only option. This is the end bit. So, there you go. There is a remarkable consistency to life on Earth, where humans and chimpanzees have 99% of their genome in common and human beings and bananas apparently have 50% in common. This consistency can lead us to assume that all life in the universe might actually be a bit like us. But that's unlikely without a common ancestor, and it's unlikely that panspermia could account for all the life in the universe, and there's no very strong grounds to think that panspermia accounts for life on Earth either. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question or you just want to create a fuss, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll try and breathe some life into it. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlich, Cheap Astronomy.